0: Welcome to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed and always shall be, hopefully, your dedicated and grateful and gracious host. Man, when I started this thing with my friend Michael Lee Simpson about a year ago, that was a shorter intro, (laughs) let me tell you. Hi, this is the Inspired Minds Podcast. Next. (laughs) Now Now I just don't fucking care. Um, but I do care, actually, and I really am still enjoying doing these things. Every person I speak to has an enormous amount to offer me and hopefully the listeners of this fine, fine, award-winning podcast. I, my mom gave me an award, but nevertheless, it's an award, and I, I, I just love what I'm doing. Um, I am starting to actually go full-time as a therapist that's wild. Third career, ladies and gentlemen. I think F. Scott Fitzgerald once said that there are no second acts in America. Fuck that guy. Fuck F. Scott Fitzgerald. I got three, pal. Musician, record company exec, now therapist. Hooray for change. Hooray for adaptability. Um, so, a little before, uh, before I get into this next guest, I've, I've been thinking about this idea of the moonshot. That the uh, so when JFK was in office and we were going to the moon, uh, it, the whole project was called the Moonshot Project because it was it, it was it was an incredibly difficult thing to pull off. Clearly, but don't forget they didn't have computers. Don't forget they didn't even have calculators. They had slide rules, slide rules, and pencils and pens. And a bunch of fucking nerds in a giant building in NASA somewhere with, with bad horn-rimmed glasses and black ties and white shirts. And they just sat around. And they it, 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 the whole concept of getting a giant uh, rocket to the moon, it, just astronomically ho- t- terrifying. It's really, really hard, obviously. So at any rate... They called it the Moonshot, but there's this one thing that JFK said that stuck with me for a long time now. It's, and he was talking about it, and he says, We do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I didn't do the JFK accent because I wanted to spare you. But how wonderful of an idea is that? We do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard, because they require sacrifice. And if you're going to hit your Moonshot, whatever that may be, because I use this a lot of times with my uh, clients, that what's your moonshot, what's your North Star, what's the thing that you're going to try and hit? Do that. (laughs) Figure that out. And that's where true purpose and meaning comes in, and I really do think that that's a lot of what a moonshot is. That being said, that leads me into the intro to this incredible woman, my goodness, Laverne McKinnon. Uh, She was a uh, referral, as I like to say, from my good friend uh, and and former podcast uh, guest named Richard Potter, fine gentleman in his own right. Laverne McKinnon, my God. So the thing that I really, when Richard said, Hey, you might want to talk to her. I looked her up and she's a moonshot mentor. That's how she builds herself. And she's a a career executive leadership coach. And prior to that, she was in the, um, in the entertainment industry as an exec. So she and I had a lot of similarities in that respect of kind of looking at both sides of the coin. And But she's a therapy nerd. She's exactly like me. And she has her whole thing is about the moonshot and that whole concept. So needless to say, we really bonded over that. Um, And she was wonderful. She had this great phrase that we are meaning making machines as human beings. And we do it through storytelling. I'm a storytelling guy. That's my shtick. It was great to hear somebody else do my shtick as well. Um, it was like a comedy team, but for therapy, <laughs> I had a great time. So at any rate, uh, again, I truly hope that you love this as much as I did making it, because my goodness is a lady intelligent and a charmer to boot. All right. Bye. All right. Inspired Minds, dazzled. Drong, please say hello. My next guest, good Lord, the lovely and talented Laverne McKinnon. Laverne McKinnon, please say hello to the Inspired Minds, dazzled. Drong.
1: Hello, hello, hello. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I cannot wait for this one. So the way I start this interview off, the very beginning, um, same question for every single person. It, it is the following. When you were young, Laverne, what was the first thing that you can truly recall that lit you up? What inspired you? Was it a song? Was it a book, a movie, a person? Go.
1: I I don't know if it's the... The first or the earliest, but the one that really comes to mind, and I do have a little bit of um, uh, like embarrassment sharing this, so it's probably um, a good thing to share. Is, love it. Yeah. Um, what I was really like inspired and lit up by. I love like Teen Beat, Tiger Beat, those types of magazines, and uh, like I was a big. Leif Garrett, Jimmy McNichol fan, right. Sean Catley. And I would tear their photos out of these magazines and I would organize them into folders. Huh. And I had this incredible system of how I organized my my crushes on different um, musicians and stars. And I think the reason it lit me up is that I I do love structure. I thrive with structure, but I was actually able to marry that structure and that organization with um with fandom. Huh.
0: I love that. I love fandom is is like that's my I could I could do an entire podcast series on fandom alone.
1: Yeah, I I gotta tell you, it's like when I was contemplating several years ago. I was like, who do I want to be on social media? Because that's how I think. It's like, I'm, a, I'm very much like, okay, what am I doing? What's my intent here? And I thought, I just, I want to be a fan. I, I, and, I, and then I started to even sink deeper into that. And I thought, I just like, I want to walk through life, looking at people, looking at situations, looking at spe- experiences and finding, ex- using your language, what makes my heart pitter patter, what lights me up about, about what the people that I'm encountering and the experiences I'm having.
0: I, I absolutely love that. And that actually reminds me of a quote that I just pulled up. I use this a lot on on in just in my life and on the show. I forgot the guy's name. It's, it's a rabbi. But this quote's amazing. He says, Our goal should be to live life in radical amazement. Get up in the morning and look at everything in the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. And here's the kicker: to be spiritual, to be spiritual is to be amazed.
1: Wow. I love that so much. I feel like it's what I need to hear at this moment in time. So thank you for sharing that.
0: I will send you that quote. Um, And it's that idea of being an eternal student. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Those are. So tell me then kind of the part B of the conversation of that question really is how did that, and you kind of answered it because people usually do, but how did that, Pairing up pictures of Leif Garrett and Sean Cassidy and organizing them—I love that the detail of that. How did that carry you into your current work?
1: Um, I think that organization, structure, strategy always came really easy to me, and I don't—I didn't realize until very late in life that it was actually a, a talent. It was a, it was a skill because hmm. I thought. Everybody should have that, um, and everybody did have it. It's like it never—I never occurred to me that people didn't have a high level of executive functioning. And I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent, but it, it's probably like one of the places where relationships got the most mucked up is because I assumed that everybody had a high level of executive function. So if someone didn't respond to me with something in what I would consider a timely way, or if they dropped the ball, or if their feedback to me or notes to me weren't like really precise, I would get like frustrated and angry. And how it sort of has influenced me over time is that I realized, oh, we all have different gifts, we all have different talents. And mine is it's not unique but it's obviously unique to me and then through my work as a producer as a film and television producer through my work as as a coach it I've I've learned how to use that structure and that organization to allow people specifically artists, writers, directors, you know, actors, other producers, other executives to to like to bro- provide them like with the container to fully express and i'm I, I can't remember exactly what you said jeff but like that radical what was the, the quote the, what is it uh,
0: radical amazement
1: yeah to find that radical amazement uh, that clearly was not like the words that i have ever used before but i'm so enamored with that uh so yeah where it's like the mirroring of, of structure and artistry i think just really um allows amazing things to happen
0: absolutely agree um so I, I i gotta jump in here also with this moonshot i really i could do the whole show on this concept of the moonshot so my background as as, as i mentioned earlier is uh where we were we were recording i am a current therapist and moving hardcore into that world i love that world and i've been telling i've been i've been locked on this idea of a moonshot and i've been telling my clients this this idea and specifically the details of it which i'm sure you know i love this kind of stuff because, you know, back then in the 60s, it was, a, it was a Herculean effort to shoot a rocket right up to the moon. There was math involved, and I tell my clients, you know, these giant rooms, there was no computer, slide rules, a bunch of nerds figuring this out. And it was, it was an, almost an impossible thing to pull off. But the thing that I love the most, and I use this quote all the time now, is JFK's quote when he was giving the speech about it. And he says, we do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And I'm curious if that and you also use the phrase North Star, which is something that I also use. Tell me about Moonshot and if what I said can kind of relate.
1: Oh yeah, a hundred percent. And um I I feel so passionate about moonshots and helping people with their moonshots, is because as a child, like I I was taught to play small as a way to protect myself. My my mother was Japanese. Um, she had a really difficult childhood growing up in Japan during World War II. My father um, is American. He was stationed in Osaka, Japan during the Korean War, and that's where they met and fell in love. And both of them had really, really, really challenging childhoods. And so when I came along, and I come from a lower income family, is that it was really about survival and survival was not about hitting moonshots survival was about survival and it's like play small because you know bad things can happen if you allow your head to pop up then you'll become a target and and i'm grateful to my parents because they gave me a really safe and secure home in which to, to grow from. And so my childhood wasn't reflective of their child. My childhood was very, very different because my parents were able to keep me, me safe and secure. And so as I got older and I, I realized, wait a second, there are there are dreams. There are, are, there are these things that feel like they're impossible. And yet we can make them possible through knowing what our North Star is north stars are like those, those values being able to access our our courage being able to really self assess without judgment and so you know that's the way that i i look at moonshot and i i'm curious for you like have you have you always like known what a moonshot was even if you didn't have that specific verbiage
0: my father uh, was a uh, he was a rocket scientist uh over at air oh force so i'm aware back in like the 60s so i'm aware of it <laughs>
1: wow and how did that manifest in your
0: life well my dad actually worked on the moonshot
1: <laughs> whoa
0: oh so
1: did you feel inspired by your dad's work or did that like set a bar where it's like oh boy i've got to do something like that
0: well my dad's far smarter than i am <laughs> my dad has <laughs> patents you know the patents i have none <laughs> wow. having that having said that you know, I he taught me about the moonshot and I've heard so many amazing stories from him from the ground up. Um, because he was at Edwards Air Force Base. I mean, they were building that stuff there. Um, so that being said, that's where that metaphor was always or the idea of it. And then I kind of did more research on it and I was like, Oh my God. You know, and the idea of a moonshot and really a North Star, what we're really talking about here is meaning and purpose, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And and I could talk about Victor Frankel's was book about man's search for meaning, which changed my entire life.
1: Me too. Me too.
0: Right. And I know that. You know why I know that? Read your quote of yours. <laughs> ah.
1: Yeah, I swear we do. You have such, like, I'm in this, like, however long we've been talking, less than 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, I think we've got a very similar owner's manual.
0: We certainly do. Um, and my favorite uh, one of the great things that I pulled out of some of your uh, writing was that you could, you could, the idea that you can rewrite the meanings that you had created in the statements of truth. Mm-hmm. That is everything. That's narrative therapy. That's exactly – it's storytelling, isn't it?
1: Yeah, because we are. It's like we're we're meaning-making machines, right? We Storytelling, I think, is part of our DNA. It's like whether you work in a creative job or not. And so we're constantly making stories. And Brene Brown yeah. writes about this in a really powerful way in that our brains are rewarded – when we create story, but our brains can't differentiate between whether like the accuracy of the story. It just goes, Oh, great. Yay. You've, you've come up with something to, to define or to um, help us understand a situation or experience, but it may not actually be the truth. Uh And so we can get caught up in that because we get this, you know, this rush of, yay, I've created a story. It's her her work around how our brain functions with stories is Is astounding.
0: You know, I have to look that up. I I I didn't know that. And in fact, after this, maybe I'll send you the radical amazement thing, and maybe you can send me some more information on that, because I'm a neurobiology guy too, so that's fascinating to me. The one thing I will say about this too, about rewriting meanings, is and going back to the storytelling thing, I use this all the time now in my in my work with clients, because it's because you know there's that narrative arc, right? I am this person, I am that person, but When you, I try and operationalize it a little bit with people and I'll say, like, if I'm working on a particular topic, I've I've done it a few times on grief, someone's lost a loved one and I'll say, tell me three stories about that person, beginning, middle, and an end can be as long as you want, short as you want. Let's do it in the session though. One session, it can be about anything about that particular person. So they tell me the story and oftentimes we can kind of find a theme, abandonment, fear, love, safety. You know the big Kahuna's. Then we can really kind of suck out the meaning, and then work on the meaning, and then maybe even find a connection of of a kind of like a meta meaning out of the storytelling alone.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: How does that ring for Do- you? Am I close?
1: <laughs> yeah. I um. What was popping into my head as you were talking about that is um. And I'm not an expert on this at all. So some of your listeners may be able to further educate me on this. But my experience is that um, in Western cultures, we really rely quite heavily on stories that have a beginning, middle and end, because it gives us that sense of safety. Hmm. Um, and then I, I've been exposed to different work from Asian cultures, where the storytelling is actually circular. And that huh. there is no beginning, middle, and end. And so, over the course of reading a novel, I'm meeting characters, and then they fall by the wayside, and we never come back to them ever again. <laughs> really? Yeah. And and so it's interesting because I do feel like, and I, and I love the structure of the beginning, middle, and end because it provides an opportunity to really, you know, slow down and take a look at the the meaning that we may be associating with the beginning, middle and end. And then sometimes I feel like, at least for me personally, I rush to an ending because the middle is so messy, I can't take it. Ah. And so I'm actually truncating my experience because I want to get to a completion point. Whereas if I embrace a different type of storytelling model, which allows for an open-endedness and a non-closure it's wildly uncomfortable and at the same time it also in some ways feels more truthful
0: sure that's really interesting can you talk can you talk a little bit more about the more circular storylines in asian writing
1: yeah um and again i don't i'm not an expert i don't have a depth of it. Um, and you know, I'm going to give you actually in a, in a, different example, just to bring this to life a little bit more, which is, um, so a lot of the work that I, I really, uh, that I think is really important that I do in my coaching practices around this concept of disenfranchised grief, which yes. is a type of grief that is not recognized, um, by communities, by society as being valid. So for example, um, people who may have lost a job or been laid off or fired and people are feeling a deep sense of loss around that experience, but it's like, oh, you'll find a new job. Oh, aren't you so glad you left that toxic environment? You should be so happy. Now you can be free to do what you really want. It's like, oh no, I'm experiencing tremendous loss around that. Right. And so if I use, and I'm not saying that it's a bad thing or a good thing, it's just an observation of like when I use a beginning, middle and, and ending story structure to help someone through their disenfranchised grief, it's encouraging them potentially to come up with an ending and a meaning to having been fired or laid off mm. that may, they may not actually be ready for but they want to get out of the pain so much that they come up with that ending. So for example, like with me, I was fired from a company that I had worked with for 10 years and I'm not going to be coy. I worked at this, I worked at CBS for 10 years and I had an amazing run. And then, and then I was fired and, and I lost my identity. And so in using the beginning, middle and end story structure, it's like, I was hired sort of like as a baby executive. The middle was I rose through the ranks. I was promoted every 18 to 24 months. And then the end was I was fired. And, and so some of the meaning that I took on that was, hey, I suck. I, I'm a loser. No one will ever hire me again. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in over my head. And then through some processing, the meaning that I created was it was no longer a match. I sort of quote unquote grew up in those 10 years working for CBS and and the things that I valued were no longer were not a part of what the company valued. Now if I was going to be using a circular story model and not being focused on a beginning middle and end, I would be able to say and I am saying right now is that that was just an experience that I don't have to come back to or I could return to, and that it's informing my journey and that I don't have to rush to create meaning. And when I was fired, that was in 2006. And at the time of this recording, we're in 2023. And i it's how many years is that? That's like 14 years later. And I still really don't have clarity on what that meant being fired. And so rather than getting hung up on for me personally, what is that ending? What's that meaning? I'm just going to keep moving.
0: I, I love that. And I really do love the fact that you talked about disenfranchised grief. And that was something that it's so interesting to bring this up because, um, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, before we recorded, my wife passed away. Uh, it was terrible, you know, suicide, blah, a huge thing, like just Wagnerian in its scope. And the grief thing was interesting because um, you know, I had a lot of support and I was very fortunate, incredibly fortunate to have an amazing amount of support. And obviously over time, that support just kind of goes away and that's normal. That's just how it works. Unfortunately, you do kind of end up grieving alone in a lot of these situations. That being said, I never felt pressured to put a timeline on my grief and that's been wonderful. But the interesting thing is, so three years... I, I was able to work continuously after her suicide for about three years, but I was kind of in a daze and finally left the, uh, left the industry and it was a mutual parent or a mutual ending, but it wasn't until I was really, you know, who am I, what am I made of? And it wasn't until my therapist said, you're grieving your job. And I went, what? That's a thing. <laughs> you know, I had no concept of this idea. And especially too and I saw that you've written about this, how we deal with it in America is dramatically different than how so many other cultures do, you know, bereavement leave. If you're really truly lucky to even get it, not that long. And you're basically expected to get back to work like in a week.
1: Yes, exactly. And I appreciate you sharing and talking about your wife's death and the mutual parting of your job, because Part of what's happening in both of those situations of, of, of loss is that your brain is trying to wrap its head around, wait a second, the way that I understood the world is no longer the way I'm experiencing it. Hmm. And, and how you also articulated for three years, it's like you continued to work after your wife died and it was a daze. And, and I think that that's some of the mistaken beliefs around grief is like, you know, for some people, they, they have their, their mourning period. You know, what, let me back up that there's, I think in the West that there's like specific timelines around a mourning period. It's like, oh, you know what? Of course it's like, go to the memorial service and then we'll see you on Monday, you know, take right. the weekend right. and then, or it's like, or if it's a more significant loss, like a spouse or a close friend or a parent, it's like, it's going to be a couple of months. Don't rush through it. You know? Yeah. You know. But it's like, no, it's like grief doesn't have those types of rules. And and because there's a belief around grief having rules, I think people get stuck into these arbitrary timelines that that are ultimately not helpful and then create a lot of, Shame and then shame, of course, puts us deep into our caves and yep. we get stuck. Yeah,
0: yes, and you know, there's an interesting to, uh, story that I or interesting thing I saw actually, speaking of uh, grief. Um, I'm not 100% sure about this, so forgive me, but I, as I understand it, you know, there's that concept in Judaism of sitting Shiva right for seven yeah. days. However, what's really interesting is back in the, uh, back in the early uh, times of Jerusalem, if someone – if like a family member of someone died, I think it was like seven of their friends actually would sit in a row kind of next to them apparently and they would actually stay there for seven days. They would sit quietly wow. without – I mean of course there was food break or someone brought them food I'm sure. But they sat for a, like a week in silence in support of their person, their friend.
1: See, and what, yeah, it's like the witnessing of loss, of grief, I think is an important part of the experience because when our experiences are not validated by other people, it can make us a little crazy. <laughs> There's, a, um, oh, Jeff, I'm blanking on where I read this. Um, oh, I'll have to, I'll, I'll find it so you could put it in your show notes. but. It's, um, there's a community not in the West that when there's a loss, typically when someone dies in this community, people will put a piece of their furniture out on the front lawn to say and to indicate, we see you, we hear you, you're not alone, wow. that our world has been altered and so this physical manifestation of putting a per- piece of furniture on the lawn acknowledges that the way that we see the world and this, this person or this situation no longer being in the world, this absence, we see that. And yes, we know that that's, that's, that there's, that's deeply impactful.
0: It's a ritual of respect.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes.
0: Uh, and, and we don't do ritual that well here in the States. <laughs> yeah. What yeah. an amazing idea. I love it. I just got to say, I really do truly love that idea of disenfranchised grief because it completely hit me. There's another thing, and this is tying back into it. This is something else you said. The grief was worth it for you because it led to the dream evolving until it crystallized into helping people tell and make more stories. And there you go. Because for me, <laughs> The meaning that I uh, this is a, this is perfect actually the the end of the story that I was trying to find in that circular grief story, which now that I think about it, there is no ending because it happened I I guess the ending is maybe it quote unquote happened, but in order to give meaning to my grief, I had to go help others and help them make stories Yeah, because if I didn't, in opinion. If I didn't, all the lessons that I've learned from mental illness, and I mean, I went broke because I was manic, and you spend every last dime, and just trauma after trauma after trauma, medical trauma, like the last 10 years have just been bananas. And yet, because I'm an adapter, I think everyone's an adapter, but I've learned the skill. I've taken, though, if, if I don't pass on the knowledge to others, then I personally believe that the knowledge isn't worth anything. It Maybe mm-hmm. for me. But my call, my responsibility, my duty is to give it to others.
1: When did you have that insight?
0: That it was my calling? Yeah. Um, To be honest with you, it was really, it's a great question. It was really imprinted on me early in sobriety of all things. I was, I got sober two years before she died and I went through AA, and it was all about service work, service work, service work, and it kept me above ground for a long time. And I started to understand the value of helping others. Then I read about five years ago, a quote from Gandhi that he said, in order to find yourself, you must lose yourself in the service of others. And that was a lightning bolt for me, because I have acquired all this crystallized knowledge of mental illness, grief. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff. I got connections to addiction. And I just realized that when I help people, I'm happy. The end.
1: And I'm, I'm curious in, it sounds like you have such a connection to fulfillment and do you ever like run into speed bumps or do you ever feel, um, I don't know what the right word is, but is it all like, you know, happiness, happiness, happiness? Or do you ever have like moments in in living this purpose where it's not so
0: awesome? Sure. Um, I'm going to give you a metaphor. How about that? <laughs> Great. Have you ever heard of a story called, famous short story from the late 1800s called The Lady or the Tiger?
1: Oh, yes. Tell me again. I haven't heard it in a while.
0: Nobody has. I don't know why it popped in my head. When I was about 11 years old, I saw school movie about it. I was like, what? The idea is, in the late 1800s, it's really not that great of a story, by the way. It's not well-written. However, the, the gambit is, there's um, like a futuristic-ish society where the way they judge people and the way they sentence people, everyone's in a big arena, and the king is there, and the accused stands before the king. And in this uh, little arena, there's two doors uh, like way away, like 100 feet away from the condemned. And there's one's here, one's here if you uh if you open and the condemned says or they totally condemned open a door that is your sentence if you open one door there's going to be a lady and the lady is a princess and you get married to the princess and you live a happy life the other one is a tiger (laughs) okay if you open the door for the tiger tiger comes out you get eaten boom the way the only reason the story anybody cared about the story was because it was sort of novel in the fact that it was the ending was like They describe the scenario of a guy and they say, what do you think is going to be his fate? End of story, right? Like, a, At any rate, the way I look at things that come at me, and of course they do, but the way I look at challenges that come after me, or let's say potential challenges, I will look at the potential challenge and say, is that a lady or a tiger? Lady or tiger? I'm not going to know, obviously. I do this a lot when I get phone calls in about like medical uh, results or something that I'm kind of waiting for. And I'll think to myself before they really tell me what the deal is, lady or tiger. And I, then I realized, if it's a tiger, that's fine. I've tamed a Bengal tiger 10 years ago. Nothing's going to get that worse. And that's the key for me. Nothing. I know with, sinc- I know with absolute sincerity, mathematical precision, that nothing's ever going to happen like that again. And I did it. I tamed that tiger. I can tame any tiger ahead of me. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, it does. Because not to be Pollyanna here, but what I'm, I feel like I'm hearing you say is that um, the tiger does not, it it doesn't necessarily mean or represent that you're going to die or be shredded to pieces. Well, that's certainly a possibility. The tiger also represents a kind of opportunity for you to flex
0: some muscles. Correct. But I also know the tiger isn't going to kill me. I am yeah. free. I am free from fear. And I tell people this a lot and I say, I am lucky. I feel like a fuck, pardon my language, but what's my show? I can know what the fuck I want. <laughs> um, pardon me for saying this, but you know, I feel like a superhero. I tell people this all the time. I feel like Batman, Superman, Aquaman, fill in the blank because I have a superpower, and that superpower is perspective. Because I know, unlike so many other people in this world, my gift is that I know it's never going to be as bad as that, right? So the tiger's not going to kill me. There's never going to be a Bengal tiger that's starling with blood on its on on its uh claws. That's ever going to be that bad. So what do I have to fear anymore, right?
1: Yeah. Wow, Jeff, you've really you've been through it. You have come up the other side, haven't you?
0: Yeah, a lot, lot more than that but yeah, overall yes yeah it, I'm just so fat I want you to talk about and you mentioned this before but I want you to get into more detail about core values which is another thing that I talk about my clients <laughs> I want to hear more about that
1: um, I honestly I did not even know what values were until very very late in my life and And it wasn't until I started to train as a coach that I actually learned the concept of of values and values identification. And I had this gigantic epiphany that up until that point, I was living other people's values, which is why I struggled in so many different aspects of my life. And so, for example, like my parents were really frugal people, which made sense. And so... Um, So, and they valued frugality. It actually made them feel safe and secure. It made them have a sense of pride and joy of, you know, converting, you know, leftovers into a brand new dish that was super, you know, tasty. Um, And as an adult and in the success of my career, I, I was living frugally when I didn't actually have to. And, and so it, it made me actually feel small and i was like i don't know why i'm doing these types of things and then there are other examples of like in, in my various jobs where i would be honoring the values of the company or the corporation that i was working with but they weren't actually my values mm-hmm. and so i had this underlying disconnect and dissonance and grumpiness that that was impactful and so you know values as you know are, are unique to in all of us and while jeff it sounds like you and i have a lot of shared values it's you know they're not always one to one, but in in knowing and living our core values, we then become a magnet for people who share our values, and then life just becomes, I find just like sweeter, sweeter and easier and and more more fulfilling. And anytime I have a choice to make, I'm like, okay, what value am I honoring, and is that actually my value or is that somebody else's value?
0: Oh you know you you have said this twice and you've you've used the word feeling small I've never heard a phrase that way which is why it stuck out. I'm wondering if is some of that cultural perhaps like an Asian concept of
1: um, yeah, I think it's a combination of yeah my mom um being Japanese and um the rules, the guidelines of, of, how she would walk through life and, and, and survive, let alone thrive. I also think it's a gender thing as well um, that I was taught again through my mom and, and my, the generation that I grew up in. Um, and then also it was reinforced in some of the companies that I had worked with, which is, you know, it, the organizations that I, I worked in were very hierarchical. So you know, the people that got to, you know, quote unquote, play big and own a spotlight were the people at the top of the corporate ladder, not the ones that were at the bottom or or the middle. So, playing small was something that guided me internally, but also was reinforced externally as well.
0: I've just never heard that phrase before. It's beautiful and sad. Or it's, yeah. Um, one thing sad. also too, just kind of pinpointing or ping ponging off what you just said earlier. I I love the fact that you you just mentioned surviving versus adapting or thriving, and yeah, I again like I kind of have like my tool belt of like shit to say to clients sometimes. <laughs> so here's one of them, but I'll say like you know when and again opinion not evidence based in any way possible, but when you face trauma, you have one of two choices: you either adapt or you die. And for me, death can look death basically addiction, suicide. Or dying really with what I call a calcified heart, which is when you have unresolved trauma after unresolved trauma after unresolved issue over your heart layers as granite, then you need a jackhammer to get in, and that usually doesn't work. However, mm. I don't like using the word surviving because to me that just sounds like getting punched in the face a bunch and still standing up. Like, cool, I guess <laughs> it's not what I signed up for. I didn't, I signed up to adapt. And the cool thing about adaptation uh, is that it that's where obviously that's where the growth is because you have to grow because your world just got blown out. And in order to move forward, you have to adapt around it. All of this trauma, you have to adapt every which way around it. And that is where post-traumatic growth comes in. And that is a rocket ship. I am living proof of that.
1: I, I so appreciate you talking about trauma. It's, um, I'm not able to do it this year because my, my bandwidth is too tapped, but it's an area that I want to learn a lot more about and, and do training in as, as well. Because circling back to disenfranchised grief is that a lot of my clients um, were trauma traumatized by the experience that brought on the grief. And then because the grief is disenfranchised and it's not recognized as being valid that then becomes traumatizing. Uh-huh. And so it's like trauma on top of trauma. And, and I think to your point about adaptation, I, I do believe that as humans, we naturally adapt. But if we're adapting without the recognition of what we're adapting around or why, I think that I've witnessed my clients adapt and grow in directions that are not ultimately helpful or aligned with their core values or their purpose. And, you know, luckily, not even I don't know if luckily is the right word, but I also believe that as humans, it's like then we can we can continue to adapt and we can course correct. So I guess I'm saying this of like that anyone who's listening of if if you're feeling some type of like dissonance within your body, if something just doesn't feel right, I'm like pay attention to that. Mm -hmm. because there's probably something out of alignment that's related back to values.
0: I, I'm a big fan of the somatic approach and I will tell you this. Um, by the way, everything I tell my clients is I, I say to myself, obviously too. So it's the same thing, but that it, the body is an early, it's like an early warning system. Like the missiles are coming in. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. I find myself sometimes in, um, A couple of times I've found myself in pretty serious situations where I'm kind of getting upset and I wash my handshake and I go, I got to walk away for a second because, like, whatever's coming out of my mouth next is not going to be good.
1: Yeah. And I'm curious, did you, how did you start to make that connection between what was going on in your body with what might happen next?
0: Reading The Body Keeps the Score didn't hurt. (laughs) <laughs> oh okay great was the body keeps a score concept that there's you know this idea that like trauma stored in the body and then i went oh somatic reasoning i can we can it's all tied together anyway duh because the first it's interesting somebody said this to me a professor of mine I thought it was brilliant she said the first the like emotion starts at when the it, it starts at the body obviously but it starts when you feel it on your skin basically and she's right because whatever stimulus is coming at you, it's almost a body reaction sometimes, even like a, you know, you can almost feel it coming in and then it kicks up to the head. Wow. I'm, I'm a huge, moving on, because I could talk huh? about this kind of stuff forever. Act, no, wait, last thing. Um, cinema therapy. Do you use that at all? Are you, are you familiar with that?
1: You know, I don't personally use that. Is that something that you use in your practice?
0: By accident, once. I had a client one time. All he wanted to do was talk about um, his favorite movie, There Will Be Blood, which happened to be mine, strangely enough. So we ended up talking about the movie for a while. And I kind of went backwards and like, apparently that's sort of cinema therapy, but I don't really understand it.
1: Yeah, I, I, I... Uh, yeah, I know of it. But I'm not intimately familiar, and I don't use it. What I'm, I'm, values is obviously a part of your your practice. What other are there other in the body as well? Are there other? I'm curious, just like in terms of your training as a therapist, are are there modalities that you're especially drawn to?
0: You know, it's funny about the modality thing. Um, I'm. I'm kind of more like a stew, I think, like everybody else is, basically. of Like, eh, I'll take a little from here, a little from there. Um, DBT and Narrative are uh, – but I use a lot of existential therapy. Um, I guess really those three are kind of my big ones, the big – and CBT just because. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but, really, but, you know, I, to be honest with you, once I figured this out, that the Therapeutic Alliance is – which for the listening audience – is essentially do you like your therapist enough to tell them your darkest secrets that bond that you get that's seven times higher to the client's success than any modality i can pull off anyway anyone mm-hmm. so i don't really wed to a particular model narrative i like and i will say this back on narrative for a heartbeat the best example of the, the best example of narrative i've ever heard in my life was when I was in the arms of my AA sponsor, Christian Stone, crying my eyes out a month after my wife died, over and over and over again. This guy was so wise, and I'm crying. I said, The love of my life is dead. The Christian, the love of my life is gone. And he said, The love of a life is gone, Jeff. You have more. And I just, he was so right. And it opened my mind to the idea of multiple narratives, maybe a meta narrative. But but uh, but multiple narratives that can fit into the meta, but my multiple narratives are I was a or I am a grief survivor I'm one who has transformed through the grief I am one who's transformed through the recoveries of everything and therefore I am the I am basically the sum totals of the lessons that I've learned from my recoveries. That's my meta narrative does that follow?
1: It does and what I was um it felt like you were when you were in the arms of your AA sponsor that you were, you were like writing the last part of a novel. And it seems like he helped you with that perspective shift to say, this is a chapter yes. of the novel, not the entire novel.
0: That's precisely it. A chapter of my novel, um, which I'm working on a chapter of my novel, you know, is guy with mental illness. It's guy with suicide ideations himself. I've been in a lot of hospitals before, you know, a while ago, but I have that history. I have a guy who was in uh, addiction, a guy who was a successful music executive, a guy who had a wonderful, wonderful wife. That lady was, I, I was so fortunate to be in her orbit as long as I was, my God, right? But now I have other narratives that I currently have. I'm a therapist. I am a wonderful son. I am, I am, I am.
1: Yeah. Jeff, would it be okay if I just asked you a couple questions about your wife?
0: By all means. I'm open and very open. What,
1: what was your name? Missy Broom. Missy. And what was she like?
0: Uh, she taught me what it was, what it meant to be an artist, a true artist. She was a punk rock girl, tattooed, um, a beautiful woman, my goodness. Uh, she would, because of her pink hair. You can, she would walk into a room and light it up like a Roman candle. My goodness. She was a fashion designer for Quicksilver and Roxy and Paul Frank, and she was super hip, super cool. And she was the greatest example of an artist, in my opinion, because she gave with art without the expectation of reciprocity. Get this. You're familiar with the Griffith Park bear, I would imagine? The statue?
1: Uh, oh, Oh, yes, yes, yep.
0: Yeah. Every um, before she died, every holiday for about three years, we would do this. She was a seamstress just on her own, and she had like a massive sewing machine, and she made these vinyl dolls and vinyl handbags, like for fun, outside of her job. And every morning or every holiday, she would meticulously make these incredibly complex costumes for the bear, for i.e. Fourth of July. So it was a, it was a beard, you know, and it was like a hat and it was like, you know, an outfit with like sparkles all over it and shit and like American flag stuck in the hand and, or, you know, Valentine's day, Christmas, St. Patrick's day for God's sakes. We get there at night, do it all up, take a picture, leave. And the next day it's all taken down anyway. No name, no who did it, like ninja shit. Right. So she was what I call a capital A. I believe that there are capital A artists and little A artists. and, and then there, It's a spectrum. Little A artists are people that can paint, sew, draw, write a, or create a song. It's great. very artistically talented. Capital A's are a different breed of cat. They see things differently. It's perspective shift. It's addiction. It's neurodivergence. Most of it, I believe. Neil Young is one. You know, Kooning is one. Uh, Eisenstein, uh, fill in the blanks of any of the artistic greats. Michelangelo clearly was one. Um, they're just neurodivergent. And we didn't understand that word well for a long time. That's what a capital A is. And she was a capital A. And she was tortured, quote unquote, tortured artist, tortured with my post mortem diagnosis as borderline personality disorder, which was manifested through addiction and suicide. So, but that's who she was, you know, but she was the, ultimately, I will say this. She was a comet that streaked across the sky, but burned out like all comets do. That's what happened.
1: Mm. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. It, it certainly sounds like Missy did not, did not live small or play small.
0: <laughs> not in the slightest. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh my God. Uh, real quick. She had trauma in her background too, right? Like, kind of how she got borderline that's why the addiction kicked in and 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 I mean she kind of like a checkbox of some of this stuff so that's what capital A's have to go through sometimes
1: yeah I can how, how long ago was it that she died I think you mentioned it but I'm blanking yeah, no
0: it'll actually be about um, be 10 years uh, next month wow it
1: well, sounds can- like she still very much um, yeah lives inside of
0: you and when something will- here when someone burns that bright they don't leave yeah they don't leave you know those people that come in just as like shocks of light like like a shock of light that comes into your life right and even though they're gone they're still there now someone that doesn't have that incandescence isn't probably going to stick around when they leave
1: May I ask you one more question?
0: You can ask me any question you want. I can go forever. How did the two of you meet? Oh, what a lovely question. Um, She and I, I was, I was playing, tell the story. Um, I was in a band and again, I may have mentioned punk rock, fun, loud rock bands. Didn't do anything, but I got to tour a lot. It was great. I was doing a show in 2001, come to think of it. And we were uh, in Orange County, where she was from originally. And there was nobody there because no one ever came to see any of my bands. <laughs> I didn't care. I just drank, and she walks in like this giant shock pink of hair, and I'm like, oh "My God, who is this lady?" I basically picked her up at a show, <laughs> like, like like a groupie, and <laughs> and then the next day, actually, it was hilarious. We're backstage and kind of drunk, and we're starting to talk, and I didn't know who she was, and and I'm not the groupie guy at all. Like none of my bands were groupie guys. Like scared of that whole process. Anyway, she comes up to me, like, we start talking for like 30 seconds. She goes, you want to make out? And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) I guess, sure. And we start making out. And my friends all of a sudden look at me like, what the hell is happening? (laughs) What's going on? And we got married about two years later, had a honeymoon in Oaxaca on the Day of the Dead, may I say. And we traveled everywhere together. I mean, we went across three road trips in America. Like, Like, we went from coast to coast, like three times in a car going to every little bullshit stop you could make biggest tree or biggest ketchup bottle in America. Let's go there. Uh, let's go see, you know, fireworks over 4th of July over Mount Rushmore. Done. Like she was my road dog. She was my best friend and she was unbelievably troubled and really hurt me in the suicide. So that's very complex, you know, very complex.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for sharing that. I just, the way that you were talking about her, earlier i just it's like i need to know her name and i need to be able to picture her in my in my head and a little bit more about the origin i will send you
0: i will send you a couple of links if you want my favorite photo is her and she uses it all the time one year she went as the pink jane simmons for halloween <laughs> It was she. Both, she had a full costume, like fortunately the costume never got in the photo. But a full costume that she had made looked exactly like Gene Simmons. She painted her face like Gene Simmons. She had the hair up like Gene Simmons. She had a cape like Gene Simmons. Made it all. It was entirely pink, and her face paint was pink too. I will send you that photo.
1: Oh my God, that sounds amazing! I can't <sighs> wait to see that.
0: She was a genius. Um, but I don't want to keep too too much of your time here, but I got to ask this question actually because we're talking about a little bit about movies. This is, the, this is the stupidest question to ever ask on a podcast. But if you could name – give me a movie that you love. Not your favorite movie, but give me a movie that you love. And let's talk about that for a second.
1: Oh, I, I love um, – um, oh, my gosh. I've just forgotten the name of it. Holy uh, cow. Um, that much. The, uh, the Princess Bride.
0: You just saw The Princess Bride?
1: I, I didn't. I, I haven't just seen it, but I, I probably watched it. I watch that movie on a regular basis. I love it so much. Probably last time I watched it, honestly, was like maybe like eighteen months ago. But I love it, love it, love it.
0: God, that film is just—it's a soap bubble that floats on by. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Yes. God, I—you're right. It's just a, everything is perfect in that movie. Wow.
1: I, yeah, I just I, I love the humor of it. I love like I love the devotion. I love the romance. And I, I love the Mandy Patinkin storyline of, of grief and have taking agency over the loss of his father. And, you know, I just um, it to me, it just checks off every single box of a of a perfect movie.
0: It does. And you know, also speaking of Bandy uh, Pantankin, there's that fight, that amazing sword fight that he has with um, right. My favorite part about that, about that whole scene, by the way, is it's clearly on a stage. Right? Like they they did not try to hide that fact. And because it was clearly on a stage, obviously they were sort of making some reference to the 1940s films, and the music was from 1940s films. It was that duh, duh, duh. <laughs>
1: okay, Jeff. I'm embarrassed to say I never that ne- I, I don't think i've ever put that together and now i'm gonna have to go back and watch it and be like oh my gosh that's on a stage i think i've just always been so enamored i, I didn't notice any of those details that's awesome
0: it's so clearly on a stage like they did not try to hide that fact <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's, it's not like there's gaffers coming and you don't know with the, with the ladder, but you can still tell yeah. <laughs> um well what a weird way to end this um <laughs>
1: I don't know. I think it all, you know, it it all, I'm going to loop it all together. It's, um, the moonshot of, um, the love story, the, um, the grief, um, and then just a whole lot of magic. And yeah, I I think every character knew exactly what their values were and what was important to them and, and lived by them.
0: I, what a hoot, what a hoot this has been (laughs) talking to you, lady. Um, (laughs) so here's how I'd like to do this uh, the kind of the my little kiss off uh, uh, outro here here's what's going to happen this is going to involve a little bit of acting so you need to maybe pull up some method somewhere or however they do that I'm just kidding I'm going to say I'm going to pretend to say goodbye you're going to pretend to say goodbye we're going to pretend to hang up and then we'll talk for a couple of minutes after deal <laughs> sounds good All right. Uh, scene lighting <laughs> and slate Uh, Really, Laverne, this has been an incredible conversation. I cannot thank you enough. This moonshot thing, it makes me feel validated that maybe I'm onto something too, to be honest with you. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your wisdom. And now it's your turn to thank me. Well, this
1: has been really, really delightful. Our, Our mutual friend, Richard Potter, introduced us, and he has great intuition and I, I said it at the top of our conversation, and now I feel solidly that you and I have very, very similar operating manual instructions, playbook of life and and I've learned some new things here, and I'm, I'm, a, and I'm a lifelong learner, so I, I just I love this. Thank you very, very much for the time.
0: How absolutely wonderful. Can I now say that I am Laverne McKinnon approved?
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely.
0: Like a big stamp on the website. like Lauren McKinnon says yes. Yes. I have a license. Okay, here we go. I'm going to pretend to hang up. Don't forget. Three, two, one, and click.